Spencer, it's racing season, and you raced your bicycle this weekend. Let's let's hear all about it. That's right, Fred. I went all the way out to Oklahoma for the Land Run 100 gravel race. It was more than 100 miles, so that's sort of the that that's the sneaky thing they do to you. They call it a 100, but it's actually 106 miles. And I'll tell you that last six miles is longer than the ordinary six miles you might do on a lunch ride. What do you plan to do with that race result of yours? Well, uh, I should just uh, put it up on our, our little uh, refrigerator here in the Velo News office so everyone knows how fast I am. No, Spencer. Race results, they're like currency right now because of our good friends at Health IQ. Oh, right. The listeners have been hearing us talk about Health IQ for a few weeks now. And the thing is, if you are a bike racer and you get a race result, you can use it to get a great quote on life insurance because Health IQ is the innovative life insurance company that works with cyclists, runners, triathletes, people who compete, who train, who go out there and get after it. And what you can do is go to their website, upload your race results, and get a great quote on life insurance. They have a URL for us, don't they? They sure do, Fred. You just go to healthiq.com slash velonews. And you can do this for any race, not just a crazy 100-mile race that leaves you on your hands and knees like this one did for me. But more on that later. Yeah, we're going to be talking all about your race results because racing season is here. So again, check out Health IQ and see what kind of a great rate you can get. On with the show. We're back, we're back, we're back with the Velo News Podcast. Guys, this weekend was amazing. Oh, the ecstasy of victory, the agony of defeat, the confusion of trying to decide if you're going to walk your dog or not or miss the final 20 minutes of uh, Milan San Remo. Such a scheduling difficulty. Timing is so crucial in this race. It's all about timing for yeah. the racers and the spectators. Yeah, it's like, okay, seven hours of sitting around doing nothing, and, oh, I got a phone call and missed the interesting part. Oh, Gosh dang it. Brutal. I'm Fred Dreyer. You're tuned into the Velo News Podcast. We're coming at you from the bowels of the Velo News World Headquarters. I'm joined today by Dane Cash. Hello, Dane. Hey, Fred. How you doing? I'm doing great. And by Spencer. Here I am. You survived your bike race. We're going to talk all about your gravel expedition later in the show. But first... Guys, we have to talk about Milan Sanremo because just one week ago, I was on this podcast poo-pooing Milan Sanremo mm. as my least favorite monument because, oh. Such a bogus take. So boring. So oh, bogus. Gosh, riding around for seven hours. And of course, what happened? Milan Sanremo served up just, just one for the books. Just a real classic. Dane, as a viewership experience, as a viewer and a fan of cycling, what can you say about this year's Milan Sanremo? I think as long as you buy into what Milan San Remo is, it was it was a Milan San Remo for the ages. You you really have to accept that it's just going to be boring for five hours. And if you just are at peace with that, if you say, okay, fine, I'll tune in for the last half hour, then you're going to be treated to the, the best half hour of racing that I can remember in the last couple months. So I think for the for the viewers, it was an awesome addition, again, with that caveat that you just have to accept that it's going to be that kind of boring five hours. If for some reason you're tuning in, you don't know what happened. Uh, spoiler notes, alert. Spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. Yeah. Uh, Vincenzo Nibali attacked on the Poggio, got a small 10-second gap. There was a will-they-or-won't-they type scenario on the run into the finish with the peloton coming agonizingly close to Ooh. catching him, but Nibali held the wolves at bay with enough time to post up Anyone else think that his post-up might have may have been a little premature? I was oh, like, yeah. whoa, buddy, keep the hands on the bars there. Oh, no, it was perfect. I mean, he's an Italian, and it's an Italian race, the panache. It's, yes, and it makes for such a good photo, too, when he's right there, and the sprinters are just meters behind him. Oh, so satisfying. It's like, it's as satisfying as peeling off a sweaty chamois after like a hundred miles of riding. It just feels so good. Whoa, buddy. <laughs> We're going to get more into that on that later. Spencer, as a piece of bicycle racing viewership, uh, what do you have to say about this year's Milan San Remo? It's to me, my favorite bike races come down to this type of scenario where there is a guy off the front, the chase is on, they're trying to, you can't tell if it's gonna, gonna go or not. You can't tell if the sprinters are gonna have their day or not. It's down to the wire. And also really it's just a bit more of a, of a tactical game where you can see how things are playing out in the Peloton and, you know, why isn't this team coming to the front to chase? And, oh, what happens if, you know, if, if Matteo Trenton gets brought back? And, and just that suspense is, is marvelous, I think. And this is 
such an exceptional way to kick off the real heart of classics, of spring classic season. Yeah, we know Omloop happened, Kern Brussels Kern happened, great races, but you know, it's not Milan San Remo. Yeah, Milan San Remo is an interesting one because to a certain degree it is a test of what the human body is capable of doing after being in the saddle for seven hours and riding around at a stiff tempo. And I think that's what makes this race, especially this year's race, so interesting was that it did come down to basically momentary hesitation in the final kilometers. You know, the seven-hour slog through the rain and muck on the Italian coastline. And then all of a sudden... The race is won and lost by the decisions that are made in a few milliseconds near the foot of this like crazy climb that isn't that big, but after you know two hundred and whatever kilometers in your legs, it feels like it's Mount Everest. Uh, yes, Dan. Yeah, and the descent as well, I think, is a big part of that climb. I mean, Definitely, it's, it's not the hardest climb in the world, but that descent is very hairy. And even we saw this weekend, that even on dry roads, it's just it's so tricky that it, it can be really tough to reel somebody in. And the fact that it flattens out only 2K from the finish, you know, that's another thing that's working in Nibali's favor. He's one of the best descenders in the world. Even on dry roads, there were crashes in the peloton. People were taking it very carefully. Nibali's dive bombing it. So it, it definitely uh, goes in his favor. The fact that even though this is not a very steep descent per se, it is a tricky one. I think a lot of fans have been waiting years for Nibali to pull this one off, knowing that he's got those skills for a descent like that. And especially thinking back to the Olympics when he was in the final move and crashed out there on that hairy descent in Rio. It's the same sort of thing where you're like, oh man, he can use those skills and get that gap to stick. Or like every year at Liege, best on Liege, when he goes on the attack over La Redoute, we're like, <laughs> oh man, dude's got sick descending skills. He's going to hold it off. And, and no, that's not the case. And even at this race, because guys, if there's one thing we've seen over the years, we've seen Vincenzo Nibali go for these bold attacks, usually on the Suppressa, but sometimes on the Poggio, get gaps, and it's just never really worked out for him. And so that's another reason why this race was so special. Uh, as, as a quick aside, so the distance of Milan-San Remo, 185.2 miles. That's long. Hmm. Uh, you know what, you know, that comparable distances, that's like uh, racing your bike from uh, New York City to Baltimore or from Chicago to Indianapolis. Um, I, I went on the, the map, on Google Maps, and started nice work, being Fred. like research. research. Yeah, well, doing some done. real light Google research. That's what we get paid to, to do, man. See yeah. what that would be comparable Journalists to. Journalists right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> real strong journalism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's get into it, guys. Um, you know, from the analysis of the race, the way that the race played out, you know, I think one thing you can say is that Bahrain Merida, or Bayron Merida, as uh, our Andrew Hood likes to call them, they did play a very smart race in that, in that finale in that they had uh, Matej Mohorek controlling the pace and setting a mean tempo going up the climb. And, you know, Nibali attacks, but he didn't, you know, he wasn't necessarily the A1 uh, card they were playing because they have fast man Sonny Colbrelli back in the pack, who's capable of winning a race. To me, it reminded me a bit of the game that Sky played last year, where they have Kwiatkowski mark the move and go off the front, but they know that they have Dane's favorite rider, Elia Viviani, who has a fast finish, oh, yeah. in the back, so they don't really have to participate in the chase or do much of anything there. Um, I don't know. I mean, is that... Is that safe analysis? Is that is that some consistent analysis with what you guys saw? I'd give that an A plus analysis. Whoa, I a think plus. Yeah, it was pretty good. Oh, he's my boss. I got to give him a yeah, good grade. Fair, here, so. fair, fair. Uh, I also think that, that another thing that Bahrain did really well after Nibali went on the attack, they just kind of hung up there at the front of the peloton, kind of mobbed the road a little bit, and I think that gives Nibali an extra three, four seconds where the rest of the pack is saying, "Hey, wait, did, did Nibali just attack? And wait, what do we do about it? Because they're not at the front." Bahrain's at the front, and so you have to work around Bahrain if you want to try to chase him down, and as close as this was, any number of those little things might have been the difference for Nibali's victory. You know, the other thing I'd add is that having Chris Nylance take a, take a flyer early on the climb, he's, he's a Latvian champion riding, I think, for the Israel Cycling Academy, so pro-continental team, that played into Nibali's hand, giving him a rabbit chase, so to speak. And, and I think also it can always add to a little bit of confusion if the chase 
catches a rider who had been off the front and it's there's it always contributes to like those moments of indecision and and furthermore it seemed to me like Nibali went slightly lower on the Poggio than sometimes these attacks will happen sometimes I feel like they happen a little farther up but of course being a multiple grand tour champion he can handle climbs he can handle distance great endurance pretty solid time trialist. He's the package for this type of move. Now, the only thing I wonder is whether he had expected to bring someone along to help in the end with him. And I, I mean, there's only one way to know and by asking him, but uh, it seems like he probably would have hoped that at least one person would have come with to give him a little help. I think the other thing that may uh, have been the underlying factor behind Nibali's move was that with a Peloton that big coming into the Poggio and with you know, the pace to being, you know, I mean, it was stiff, but it wasn't lights out. People weren't just getting shedded uh, going up the first part of the climb. Yeah, I mean, come on, on uh, like, DeMar made it. Yeah, like, yeah. come on. <laughs> I wonder if people were expecting this to be a sprint year. If people were just looking at the way the dynamics of the race were playing out, the fact that it was so cold and so long, they'd been in the saddle for that long, if people just said, you know what, Maybe this is going to be a sprint finish here. And it was also a headwind from what I was reading coming into the finish, and that would, of course, also play to the favor of the sprinters who are sitting in the bunch. Yeah, we saw the headwind that was definitely depressing a lot of the attacks. To go to your your, your question about whether it was going to be a sprint year, I was thinking it was going to be a sprint year with 2K to go. I mean, I, I still thought he was going to get caught. Yeah, it was close. And I think he, sh- he should have gotten caught no. in, terms of the, in terms of the team tactics. They, they had every reason to be able to catch him, mm-hmm. and they had the firepower to do it, and they, they, just, they didn't. So All right, who, so that's where we have our first yeah. spicy take of who the day. Who does that fall on, then? Who's, who's to blame for that? I'm, I'm pointing the finger at two teams in particular. Uh, Bora, and, Bora Hounsgrove with, with Peter Sagan, first off. They had Daniel Loss. He was up there on the Poggio towards the front of the Peloton, and he, he was lollygagging. I mean, he had time to get there on the front and, and set that pace. That's what they brought him in for. And he didn't. And then so that, again, as close as this was, if, if he's at the front for an extra 10 seconds, that's a big deal. Yeah. But he was the only guy they had, though. They, they, they didn't necessarily have a real strong slate of support riders in the final group for, for Sagan. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. It wasn't like they had a quick step size contingent. Well, wait a second. Didn't they have Marcus Burghardt, who basically set the first attack going up the Poggio? Yeah, so what's the point, though? I don't know. Yeah, what, I, what was that all about? I don't know. It, it seems like they, they bungled an opportunity. Good point. Yeah, good point on Burghardt. Second bungler I'm going to go with would be Mitchelton <laughs> Scott. Bungler number two. Yeah, they, they had Matteo Trentin there, who tried to bridge up to Nibali, and Trentin's a very talented kind of all-rounder type guy. He can do it all, but you're not going to bridge up to Nibali, first mm. of all. And, and, and second of all, if you're on the front for Caleb Ewan for an extra five or ten seconds, we saw how powerful Ewan's sprint was. It was so close that surely they would have caught Nibali if Trentin had uh, contributed to the chase. And then Ewan wins by, like, 10 feet. I mean, he was a clear winner of that sprint. So I don't know what Mitchelton Scott was thinking. I don't know if this was pre-planned. I was surprised that Ewan had such a great turn of speed in the end there. I, I kind of had written him off as a guy for San Remo, at least this stage in his career. But clearly I was wrong as usual. Well, maybe Mitchelton Scott wasn't expecting him to be up there either. Maybe that's why they, they felt point. comfortable with Trentine. But obviously in hindsight, 2020, but clearly Trentine should not have tried to bridge. If he had just helped out, that would have been potentially sealed the race for Ewan. Well, to me, it looked like Trentine got a bit of his gap on the descent. And so maybe it's one of these things where you come off the Poggia with a gap in no man's land and you say, well, what the heck? What the, the heck do I do now? The accidental breakaway. Yeah. I've made that mistake. It seemed like there are a couple of those on the climb where you, the guys kind of went off the front, maybe like by accident. And then they realized, oh, man, now I'm up here. What do <laughs> oh, I do? So uh, many regrets. Obviously not so Nibbley, but there were some others who seemed to be in that position. <laughs> you know, the team to me that had some curious tactics as well was Team Sky, the defending champion team, because they set this blistering tempo going up the Cipressa. They had uh, Dylan Van Barl on the front just turning himself inside out, really trying to thin out the group. Um, they had Mikko Kwiatkowski second wheel for much of the climb. And... As soon as the pack got off that climb, I mean, that whole team went to the back of the peloton. They were doing nothing. They were just, uh, they were hanging out at the back in, in between then and the Poggio. So I wondered if maybe Kwiatkowski didn't have the legs, if they were waiting for it to finish. I, I was really curious about what their tactic was. You know, my guess is it would be the opposite, Fred, because 
Anytime the race is hard, it plays to Kwiatkowski's favor. I don't, I, I don't think it's a bad thing for Sky to shed some of the, the sprinters coming off the Shepressa like that. I think it could, could favor Kwiatkowski to have a more select group at the bottom of the Poggio, even if he's maybe spent a couple of his matches to be at the pointy end. And of course, as we saw with uh, Mark Cavendish taking that horrible crash, you just don't want to be any farther back than the top 10 riders in the peloton because who the heck knows what's going to happen on these crazy, narrow Italian roads. For that matter, Philippe Gilbert caught up behind Cavendish's crash and wasn't a factor at all in the finale. Yeah, I think the fact that Sky set that pace but they didn't really shed that many of the contenders Mm. might have been why they kind of said, okay, well, that didn't work, so we're going to just kind of lay off a little bit here because when you hit the Paggio, you saw there were a bunch of sprinters still there, and I think maybe Kwiatkowski just kind of packed it in and said, well, it's just too big of a peloton. They weren't prepared enough, I guess. I mean, I guess the other fingers that we can point are all the other teams that had strong riders who didn't react to Nibali's attack immediately. You know, the thing about this race is when the – Peloton gets to the Poggio, generally you see the guys whose only card they have to play is in a breakaway get to the front, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. Sagan went last year. Philippe was there. Kwiatkowski. Those guys are never winning a sprint. Those guys have to go with a move like that. So I was, I was very curious to see nobody react in the moment to the Nibali attack because I would have assumed that even a guy like Greg Van Avermaet, a guy like uh, Peter Sagan, Philippe would be sort of waiting for a moment like that to go. Yeah, I think the crash has played a big, big role in Nibali's victory. And obviously one of them happened right before he made his attack. And it obviously, it's not that Mark Cavendish is going to be a top contender, but there was this big, nasty crash right behind everybody, right before Nibali went. And that's going to create the amount of chaos that's going to let Nibali try to get away, even if it doesn't actually take out a contender. Although Gilbert caught behind it, that's a contender. And then Andre Greipel went down as well, broke his collarbone. Uh, and that's another team that could have contributed to the sprint. They still had a bunch of riders there at the end of that race. Like Lotto was looking really strong for Greipel's uh, hoped-for sprint, uh, Kukulera. Debuschere, Sieber, I, I think they had a couple of those guys there. And, and him going down, that's another team that's, that's not able to chase. So I think those crashes played a pretty significant role. Uh, speaking of those crashes, Mark Cavendish, you oh. know, if you haven't seen that crash, do so with uh, warning. It's pretty gnarly. It's a rowdy crash. So the fact that he walked away from that with only a fractured rib, pretty amazing. I think we're all really uh, happy that he kept the damage to a minimum because that thing was brutal. I mean, he did the full somersault over the divider. His shoe ended up on the divider. Right. I mean, it was it was a very violent crash. I think we're all pretty psyched for Mark Cavendish to escape from that one without serious injury. Crazy crash. So, you know, we, we went through it about who could have played their cards better. Another team I wonder about was Quick Step. You know, mm. it seemed like... They were really hoping for a sprint. Um, I guess, you know, the other question I have for this is what does this, what does this tell us about Vincenzo Nibali? You know, what does this, how does this add to Vincenzo Nibali's legacy? It's, it's strange to think about legacy building with a guy like him who's won uh, multiple grand tours, who's won multiple monuments. But what does this do for our opinion of him? The first thing I thought when I saw Nibali win this Milan Sanremo is that he is the best bike racer of his generation. And I'm just talking like cross the board, all talents, you know, one day races, grand tours. He's won all three grand tours. He's won Lombardia. Now he's won this. You can't name another rider who's been able to achieve such a breadth of results in his career. And I mean, you gotta go way back to find riders in history that have been able to do that with you know it to me it's just it's just the versatility that does it yeah he's not the best tour de france racer in his generation he's not the best one day racer in his generation but he's achieved all of those victories and uh done it with a lot of panache too it's just so satisfying when he wins a race like this i think Alejandro Valverde definitely deserves a spot in that conversation, although maybe a little less panache than uh, Nibali. But Valverde's only ever won the Vuelta. He's never won the Tour. He's never won the Giro. I mean, for a Spanish guy like him to win the Vuelta, that's to me, does not compare to Nibali. You know, going to the Giro and winning in dominant fashion, going to the Tour and winning in dominant fashion, and then, you know, to win Milan Sanremo, you know, ostensibly a sprinter's classic. Like, uh, to me, that's huge. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think with Valverde, it's sort of on the other side, he's much more of the one-day guy. With Nibali, with Nibali the, the thing that I thought, and this sort of is part of this conversation as well, 
where did this great one-day racer come from? Because up until 2015 at Lombardia, uh, he had not won a Pro Tour slash World Tour level one-day race since 06, which was like the, the infancy of the Pro Tour. He won Plue in 06. Ooh, before, big run. That's uh, a big one. That's a big one, yeah. yeah. wow. Before he won Lombardia uh, two years ago, that was the only World Tour one-day race he'd, he'd ever won. And mm. so in the last three years, he's now won three monuments. Mm. So he's certainly really developed that, that one-day ability. Well, I think he may be a good example of a rider who realizes that the pinnacle goal in his sport is going to be dominated by a guy who's just better than him. You know, Vincenzo Nibali, say what you will about him as a versatile, awesome racer. I mean, he's not Chris Froome, yeah. you know? And Chris Froome and Team Sky are made specifically to dominate the Tour de France. So if you're a guy like Vincenzo Nibali and you're like, I'm an amazing bike racer, I have all this talent, but you know what? The pinnacle race that, you know, what people tell me is the pinnacle race of my sport is going to be dominated by this guy and this team. Maybe I'm not going to beat my head against the wall trying everything to try and dethrone him. I know I'm not as good as a time trialist as him. I'm never going to be it. What if I try to diversify my portfolio? You know, he has a fast finish. He can climb. He can do all these things. So you know, maybe it's an example of a guy looking at the landscape of pro cycling and saying, what what else is out there for me? He also did win a tour. Conveniently when Chris Froome, of course, the one year where he you know, had an injury and, was, and it was out. But that means that after he wins his tour, he can kind of say, all right, I've won my tour. Maybe I can focus on winning that Lombardia now, winning that Milano San Remo now. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple years at the Tour de France when Chris Froome was winning and dominating, where Vincenzo Nibali showed up. And I mean, he would always be on the list of favorites, but you could just kind of tell the he way looked, he was racing. You're like, all right, you know, he had a crappy time trial. He's kind of pulling the plug in the second or third mountain day, he was going a for limp, stage wins. He was a limp piece of linguine. He was just, <laughs> he couldn't do anything when he was when he was up against Froome at his finest. That's for sure about the Tour. But Not even on the climbs, really. It wasn't just a time trial. I mean, that's were, very true. Froome was out climbing him too. Yeah. So, you know, and that's why we saw him really start targeting the Giro to start targeting the Welta and then these classics and these monuments. So chapeau to you, Vincenzo Nibali. You have found a way to stay relevant in the age of Chris Froome. A lot of guys haven't been able to do that. Hmm. Um, any, any random thoughts from this year's Milan, Milan San Remo? Any other riders we want to talk about? Caleb Ewan was, uh, yeah. he surprised a lot of people, myself included. Spencer mentioned he was surprised as well. That's two people at least. Yeah, uh, we'll see what he can do at Schuller Price. He could be a good rider for that. You never know, yeah. Or I think he could be a good rider for Milano San Remo for years to come as well. Still young. Potentially. He's pretty light because he's tiny. And he was so far ahead of the rest of the sprinters. It wasn't close. And obviously, it's a little different sprinting for second place. There are going to be guys who sit up. There were guys who set up in that sprint. But still, he was so far ahead of them. And that I think that really bodes well for, for him in the, in the big races. He's just so cute, too. He's just a little guy. He's, he's just, just a little guy. Like, like, he'll he, claw your face he, off. Yeah, he will. But he, yeah, that's why he's, he's like one of those ko koala bears they have mm -hmm. in his home tour down under. That's, he's so cute when he has those little furry little guys them. <laughs> uh, what about Armand Damar and uh, Francis Dejou? You know, they did so much work, I oh. feel like, um, in the lead up to the Cipressa, in between the Cipressa and the Poggio, they were just crushing it. And, you know, Damar was up there in the climb and it's just like momentary laps and then the, the move goes away. To me, this just confirms that Damar's Sanremo win was lucky in 2016. Wow. He was lucky that Gaviria crashed. He's lucky that Sagan got caught behind that crash. He's lucky he got a little help on the Poggio that year. I mean, he had it all lined up this year in third place. Nah, you well, know, to me, he's he's a good sprinter, but I don't at this point he's not yet at the at the level of the guys who are consistently favorites in a race like this. I think he got to be lucky to win center. I think Nibali was true. super yeah. lucky to win center. No, I mean, he no, was no. very strong. I'm not going to say he wasn't strong, but he was also very lucky. Tactics, climbing, Descending and time trialing, he put all those things together to win it. He did, and all the teams behind him screwed up a, a lot. A little bit of luck, but, but he, the timing was was huge, though. You got to admit. Anybody notice Jurgen Rulins finished fifth in the sprint ahead of Peter Sagan no, and Michael Matthews? Definitely didn't notice. I want to bring no. that up because we talk a lot about <laughs> Daniel Oss leaving BMC, and they have this guy Jurgen Rulins, who, by the way, I think it was third, like two San Remos ago or one San Remo ago. So I think BMC got to be happy with the fact that they have this guy coming in, Jurgen Rulins, who has never been a big winner. But much like Daniel Oss has a lot of talent for the classics, and that's going to be a good sign for them moving forward. Well, and they also have Jempy and the drive-by Druckers. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Going on the attack yeah. on the Poggio. Uh, the man who we talked about this past week as a good example of sort of obscure 
bike racers who are coming up. And here he is just a couple days later, yeah. just lighting it up, going up that climb. I think they're wiretapping the office at Ooh. BMC. They, they heard us and they said, hey, Jeppy, they're talking about you. It's the Russians. Go on the move. Russians. Uh, but I mean, you know, that's another support rider that BMC can count on and that we can giggle at when we say his name. Jeppy, Jeppy, Jeppy. I, I heard the announcers pronouncing it as Jumpa. And it's short for Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre, yeah. Oh, well, that's just, no Seriously, fun. Fred? Like, One of those Luxembourgers, geez, you know? On, come on. Look, guys, there's <laughs> a lot going on here at the Old Vela News uh, editorial staff. Um, that, that's actually a good segue, Dane, to a new segment we're going to debut on the Vela News podcast yeah. today. You know, you may have noticed that Dane Cash is a walking encyclopedia of writers you probably have never heard of. Dane's fandom goes deep. His knowledge goes deep, deep, deep into the Peloton. So we're going to have a section called the Dane Cash All-Star in which he uh, discusses a writer you may not have heard about who had a particularly great week. So, Dane, who's your first Dane Cash All-Star? Oh, we got multiple? Or is it just this week? Just for this week. Oh, just for the first for this week. Right, 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 right. Well, you know, I was trying to mine the San Remo results, but I wasn't really, you know, most of the top 10 people have heard of. I mean, obviously, Jurgen Rulins is not Peter Sagan, but people have heard of Jurgen Rulins. But a guy that you may not have heard of uh, over over this last week doing quite well, uh, Alvaro Jose Odeg of Quick Step Floors. He's their latest Colombian prospect find. Huge future ahead for this guy. Uh, he's a very fast rider, kind of like Gaviria, one of those uh, fast Colombians. Is it, well, a lot of Colombians, obviously, we kind of associate with climbing, but uh, Alvaro Jose is much more of a fast finisher, maybe classics type guy. On a Friday, he got his first pro win at the Hanzam Classic. Uh, we, we did a little, just a little brief uh, short on that. And then three days later, he wins the first stage of the Volta Catalunya ahead of a guy like Nasser Buani, by the mm. way, who you have heard of. Uh, and he won the Catalonia stage today, by the way, by a mile. Country I mean, mile, yeah. He was way ahead. Did he come up on the track? Does he have a similar background to Gaviria when it comes to this, why is why he's so good with the sprints? I have to admit that I don't I don't know his background yes, so much. I yeah, stumped you got Dane. Me. I you stumped got me, him. Sir. I yeah. stumped him. the day. For me, my first introduction was the Tour de Lavenir last year, where he won a stage, second in a couple of stages. So he was already hot last year. Quick step signs him, and then like four months later, he's got two two pro wins, one of which is a, is a world tour win at uh, Catalonia. So that's another guy to watch out for on quick step. They have a, a couple of those uh, young riders to watch out for, as they always do. They really churn out the talent at quick step. Well, we have Catalonia going on this week. Um, anybody got their eyes on anyone in particular? We have Nairo Quintana, TJ Van Garderen, uh, Alejandro Valverde. Thibaut Pino's there as well. Mm. Uh, I, I would actually really like to see Pino do well. I think uh, Bardet has kind of dominated the French Grand Tour contender conversation in the last couple of years, but Pino is a, a more complete rider who is able to time trial, and uh, I'm really interested to see how he does this year at the Giro. Bardet has so much more panache, though. It's P- true. Pino has trouble like going downhills without crashing. He has it's improved kind of dramatically going just, downhill, yeah, Spencer. Okay, all right. He's way better than he once was. That doesn't mean he's good, no. but he's a lot better than he was four years ago. Still, like so. you see Bardet do some of these attacks in the Tour when he wins, wins a stage, and you're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's, to me... He's racing semi-classics. He's doing well. Plus, as we all know, Roman Bardet studied to be a PR guy. Yeah. So, you know, if you ever... That's why I like him so much. It's yeah. because he's figured out a way to worm into my head with his PR skills, and he's figured it Well-crafted out. Well-crafted image. Well, I was just going to say, if you yeah. are in need of... Uh, producing content. Producing some content, yeah. or a press release, nice. call up Roman Bardet. Yeah. He can help you out with that. Fabio Aru in the house, Catalunya. Yep. Movistar with uh, Valverde and Quintana. I, I think Quintana has already said this week that Valverde's the guy, and Valverde has won this race. He was He's the defending champion, actually. Mm. But I would like to see what kind of form Quintana's in because he was just at home training, hanging out, skipping some of the races while Valverde and uh, Mikel Landa were, were out winning bike races. So I'm really curious to see what Nairo Quintana's been up to. Well, got, got, some, got some Americans, Alex Howes, Joe Dombrowski. Nate, Nate Brown showing up for uh, for Catalonia. TJ's done really well here in the past. He's yeah. won, I think, two two stages here. Yeah. Pete Stetna. Yeah. So it should be should be a good good race. This is always nice because you have that kind of flurry of action with Paris-Nice and Toronto overlapping, and you can kind of give Catalonia your full attention before you dive into E3 Harlebeck on Friday and then uh, Ken Favelkamp. I think the riders are always pretty pretty good spirits at Catalonia as well. There's not as much press coverage there. I mean, a lot of the journalists go to Belgium. I was at Catalonia a couple of years ago when TJ won that stage on La Molina and the uh, the press tent. I mean, it's a tent. It's like it's room for four chairs. And like it's a pop up. It's yeah. It's it's pretty tiny. Nice. And just the look on his face when he heard an American accent <laughs> among the four people. You know, who the heck is that? Who came all the way to La Molina while everybody else is at the classics? So well, it's a nice relaxed environment for them to really get their world tour climbing in. Better tell Chris Froome to stay away then. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to be covering that race all week 
on VeloNews.com before we head into the weekend with our first cobblestone races of the big cobble classic. Dane, you're going to be out there. So our next chat with you will be from uh, Ghent Wevelgum. Yeah, I'll be I'll be uh, in Ghent for the next couple of weeks. So Ghent Wevelgum E3 coming up. Yeah. And then, uh, obviously, the, the, the big ones, Tour Flanders and Perry roubaix All right, drink some doable for us, Dane. I'll do what I can. It's tough, tough life out there. Brutal. Yeah. Okay. All right, thanks, Dane. Safe travels. See ya. Uh, Spencer, before we talk about your race, the land run, I want to get some more analysis on this Milan-San Remo win because it was so interesting and so historic. So uh, we've called up our Italian correspondent, Gregor Brown, the one and only Gregor Marone, Ron Burgundy. Uh, Gregor, where are you right now? Marone, it's pronounced Marone. <laughs> that's, that's Brown in, in Italian. I'm uh, I'm just up the road from uh, Ponte Vecchio in Florence, uh, where where I'm based, and uh, getting ready ready to head up to Belgium for the classics. But what a Milan San Remo, wasn't it? It was awesome. That was so satisfying. We, I, I was I've already kind of professed my love for Vincenzo Nibali on the podcast, but yes. It was. Yeah, Gregor, a week ago we were talking, well, at least I was, about how Milan San Remo can be boring, about it's this seven-hour slog, and as a viewer, you know, you you get 15 to 20 minutes of excitement, you know, after this just mega long race. And this year, it really seemed like the excitement made it worthwhile to watch that race. Yes. I mean, Milan San Remo is really always like, you know... You're standing on the finish line, just not knowing how it's going to finish. And, and there's always that possibility uh, of an attack on the Pojo and sticking. But no one ever kind of thinks it's going to happen. Last year it happened at 6.3K out. But then we had a small group go to the line with Sagan, Alaphilippe, and the eventual winner, Kiyokowski. But a solo winner is an, another thing. I mean, uh, you know, last time we had a solo winner was when Cancellara won, I think, around 2008. But that was an attack that he made uh, in the final 2K run along the flats. Um, I mean, this win by Vincenzo Nibli calls back to, you know, Eddie Merckx in 1971, where he got rid of Gimondi on the on the Pojo and then rode, rode clear to the finish line to one of his many Milano San Remo wins. And uh, it also, it, it just gets everybody believing again that you can do that because, um, because you know, many people... Would have not even considered that a possibility that a, that a, an attack can stick by one person having 10 seconds at 5.4k to go over the top of the Pojo, that you can ride that all the way to the finish line, and, and he was facing a headwind too. So now, you know, all the dreamers have have uh, have fodder for their cannons in the coming years. I mean, this is this is great. Every year, you know, for the next five years or so, we're going to be riding. Well, you know, there's this possibility of a solo attack, and it can be done. You know, Vincenzo Nibali did it. And what a win. I mean, this is uh, for a Grand Tour star to, to, to win that uh, one-day race like that. It just, it, uh, I mean, I, it, we were all cheering for him when he got into the Rome. Of course, I wasn't. I'm a journalist. Yeah, but Gregor, there's was. no cheering in the press room. Come on, buddy. <laughs> uh, Gregor, so you were there at the finish line. How would you describe the overall ambiance after Nibali's victory? Uh, I mean, you've been at Milan San Remo many times before. Was it any different this year with the, you know, the style of the victory and the fact that it was an Italian champion? Did it, did it look and feel any different? It was chaos, chaos, chaos. I mean, Milan San Remo is one of those one-day – all one-day races are pretty tough as a journalist to, to work uh, on because – uh, you have to get everything done in one day, and you know, the cyclists have a hard time too. <laughs> There's no making it up like for a stage race if you lose a little bit of time one day. Uh, Milan San Remo is harder, harder yet because uh, you just never know until five, like 5.4k to go over the top of the Pojo when it's going to happen. Nibley made his move at 6.4k last year with Sagan making it 6.3, but you know, so then in, in those final in those final kilometers, you're sorting out what you need to do, what you know, who do you need to chase, and then. And then Italy just has its own special chaos. And that, and that finish line, it's back on the Via Roma after five years or so uh, on, on the proper seaside. It's back on the classic Via Roma stretch where, where Merckx had all of his wins, Zabo won, Cipollini, Pataki, Posato, everybody, th those beautiful wins on, on Via Roma. And, and it's so tight in there. So when the riders come through, 
uh, it just it bottlenecks right away. And if, if you saw some of those photos of Kiyokowski walking afterwards, and I was asking the same, why is Kiyokowski walking? Well, apparently he had, he had a crash with his bike after the finish line because everybody just squeezed in there right afterwards. And, and of course, in that case, you, we had the, you know, all of Nibley's entourage just around him, the cameras, and even more so all the media because it was an Italian win and there's more Italian media at that race, logically so, because it's an Italian race and people were going nuts. Gregor, Gregor, describe to me the like craziest Italian tifosi you saw at the finish there, the, 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 the faithful who were just crazy over Nibali's win here, the first time an Italian's won in over 10 years in Milan San Remo. Uh, there were there there were the shark flags flying outside the outside the outside the Vincenzo Nibali bus. Uh, you know, and the, the usual tifosi t- uh, comes from uh, tifo, which is like uh, sickness and uh, madness in Italian. So, uh, and and they are. I mean, it, we're up further north in Italy, so you don't quite get it as much as you do in the south. In the south, they're just nuts. But here. Uh, you, you get it as soon as you cross the line. Gr- uh, fans are grabbing your water bottles. Um, they're 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 leaning into you to try to get an autograph after you just raced 300 kilometers. And I saw some of that on many of the other riders. Nibley is kind of whisked away right after his win. Um, but uh, yeah, the fans are crazy, Spencer. So what are they talking about today? It's uh, or actually, what were they talking about in the immediate aftermath in the Italian media about Nibali? What's uh, the discussion around Nibali and the Italian press? Well, what's cool is because you know uh, football is what they call it here in Europe. Soccer it dominates the headlines all the time, um, and, and and this was one of those moments where. Uh, besides a doping story that makes the front page of, of the newspapers and every newspaper too, the last time I saw it was the the day after Chris Froome had, had that salbutamol test, uh, and he was on the front page of the local newspaper even here in Florence, and you know, and that's kind of the bad thing for cycling. That's the only time it makes the headlines. But in this case, we had Vincenzo Nibali uh, making the the front pages and uh, had big headlines. With, uh, and, and the lead uh, news, sports news uh, programs that are on television were also, uh, you know, leading with Nibali in the, on, the, on their Sunday broadcast when they're also talking about all the football games, all the soccer games going on in Syria. So this is a big deal to have Vincenzo Nibali uh, win it. And also what was happening is I talked to the general manager of the team today, and there was an article there on Vela News, is that, you know, people were tuning in in those last six kilometers and uh, – and, and you know they were getting behind this kind of this Vincenzo Nibali victory, and it was something that brought in more fans uh, into cycling. Non-cycling fans were watching it and cheering on the, this guy who, who, you know, people rally around. He's he's Sicilian. He he moved away when he was 12 years old to live up in Tuscany to start to start the trade of cycling, and uh, and he's pop he's popular in Italy because of course. Again, he's a Grand Tour star. He's won three Grand. He's won all three Grand Tours. He's won four Grand Tours in total with the Giro d'Italia twice, and he's the only one in this modern era that that can excel in these one-day races. We're talking Lombardia. He's already won that twice. He was second in Liege, but stone Liege once. He was third already back in Milano San Remo one other time. So uh, you know, he's he's the real deal. What do people think this is going to do for his legacy in Italian cycling? Well, I mean, in cycling, um, well, he 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 he's he's one of the few with with mm-hmm. with two Giro d'Italia wins, and I th- and there's there's uh, fewer with three Giro d'Italia wins, and someday he's going to come back to the Giro. This year, he's pointing to the Tour de France. I mean, uh, in cycling in in general, I mean, this is this is a big deal because uh, you know modern cycling, everybody um, specializes, so you have. Chris Froome aiming for Tour de France is uh, Quintana aiming for for Grand Tours Tour de France is so you know, we get Nibali who's who's who has a has a bigger 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 CV you know he's got these races and, and one day races he's got Grand Tours and this year he's going to go to Innsbruck and try to win the world title and that's kind of also this push to uh, really to uh, sharpen his skills in the one day races and and be ready for Innsbruck at the end of the year. And uh, and have a shot there at uh, winning a, a world tour title, and then of course you know you get other Grand Tour riders like Mikel Landa is, is going to go for that in Innsbruck as well. And Nibali, what's also cool, and we're all going to like this, uh, and even more so now is he's racing in Flanders, um, you know, at the end of this month. So uh, he's going to be bashing over those cobblestones 
and, uh, and just getting a taste of what they're like. He's never raced it. He's, he's seen it growing up. Uh, you know, they grew, they grew up cycling fans uh, down in Messina where he's from. And so he wanted to race Flanders and just check it out and see, and see how it went, uh, how, how it could go. And also that'll, that'll, uh, that'll prepare him a bit for the, the Roubaix cobbled stage in the Tour de France this year. Well, I know we're all going to be watching Vincenzo Nibali through the rest of the spring and towards the tour. But yeah, that was one heck of a win, Gregor. We're glad that you survived the chaos there. <laughs> on the, uh, on yeah, the yeah. straight. Right yeah, on, Gregor. Well, thanks it. again. And we'll check in with you during Classics Week. You'll be over there with Dane and Hoodie. Uh, so thanks again. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Awesome, man. Thanks. Spencer, this week's episode of the Bell News Podcast. Brought to us by our good friends at Health IQ. That's right, Health IQ, the innovative life insurance company that works with healthy cyclists, runners, triathletes, vegans. Oh, yes. Even the vegans. And they have a URL where you can go get a great quote on life insurance. Spencer, what's that URL? Really simple. Just go to healthiq.com slash velonews and get your free quote on life insurance. Also, Spencer, for those listeners out there who have always wanted to see the Giro d'Italia in person, but have been scared off by the enormous sticker shock of getting to Italy, renting a car, booking a hotel, doing all that stuff. And all the espressos. There's so many of them. Oh, so much espresso. We here at VeloNews have a great deal for you because you can win a trip to see the Giro in person. All you have to do is take our 2018 VeloNews Reader Survey. That's right, questions questions, questions about your interaction with VeloNews. We want to know more about you. We really like you guys. So we want to know more about you. So go to VeloNews.com slash survey. Take the survey. You'll be entered to win a trip for two to the Giro d'Italia, among other prizes. That's yeah, we got other gifts in there. We have like uh, a Shimano power meter, I think. That's pretty sweet. And uh, these questions are all about the types of stories that you like to read in VeloNews. So It'll say, like, do you like to read Fred Dreyer stories? And you can click no and then get entered to win a trip to the Giro. Fellownews.com slash survey. Go there now and fill it out for us, please. Awesome. Back to the show. Spencer, before we bring it on home, I want to hear about your experience at the Land Run 100 because we here at Fellownews are amped up about gravel racing. And you went and just participated in one of the, oh, it's not the hardest one, it's not the longest one, it's not the oldest one, but it's one of the one of the coolest ones, right? I think what you can say about it, Fred, is it's growing really fast. This was the sixth year of it, and they had, I think, about 1,500 people signed up for a few different categories. And, uh, you know, when it started, it was just about 100 people showing up to do a pretty informal thing and um, really avid support. People love the race. It's just a cool, cool family of cyclists kind of coming from all angles of the of the bike world, too. So give me the boilerplate. Where does this race occur? What's the yes. course like? What could you expect if you went out there to right check Right off the top. Okay. We're the race is at Stillwater, Oklahoma. Where the heck is that? Well, it's a little bit north of Oklahoma City, home to the U.S. Wrestling Hall of Fame. Mm. Um, so you could check that out in your free time. Uh, Stillwater is also, uh, it's a college town. You got Oklahoma State there, I think. One of the Oklahomas there. <laughs> I think it's Oklahoma State. Uh, so it's 106 miles, actually more than 100 miles. The uh, the real like kicker with this race is that so many years it's been terrible mud conditions for this race. And it's got this red clay dirt in the area. And that stuff turns into peanut butter mud when it gets wet. So fortunately for me, this year was actually totally dry. The conditions were great. So I'm, my perspective on this race is probably way different than a lot of people's because they've suffered through these muddy, muddy years. And, and I think actually in some ways there's, a, there's an appeal to it where people love the adventure and the challenge of slogging through horrible mud to finish 100 miles of gravel riding. I mean, there was a guy who was waiting in line for the porta potty next to me who said something to the effect of how he wished it would maybe rain a little. And 
and I looked at him askance and uh, he said he just thought it would be better for him or he'd like it. I don't know, man. It was it was a perfect day for riding, though, because it was a pretty cool temperatures, not too sunny, uh, a little bit dusty, of course, because it was dry, but uh, no mud, none of the trademark Land Run 100 mud this year. Yeah, this is the race where in your pre-race packet, they give you the wooden stirring stick that you get for like a, a with a paint yeah, can exactly and you it's use that to yeah get for, the mud off your bike for scraping mud off your tires oh and i brought it with me i did not want to tempt the fates i knew it was going to be a dry day but i brought it with me anyway just in case there was some crazy unexpected downpour that turned it into a quagmire so you know the growth of these gravel racings all of them tend to have a little bit different feel and vibe there's dirty kanza which is all about the suffering and the slogging and real hard man affair there's races out in california they're a little bit more about the experience and eating lunch and hanging out with your buddies i guess how would you describe the vibe of the land run who are the types of people by and large that are doing this race good question and it's hard to pin down just one or two or three specific types, honestly. That's kind of what's so cool about it is there's a real diversity of participants. I mean, I'm gonna be doing a long story on this for Vela News Magazine, so stay tuned for that. But uh, in a nutshell, I, I could tell you that right from the start, I was riding next to people on you know, tandems or cheap mountain bikes, fat bikes. I mean, I, I even saw a photo of a guy on a recumbent. There's such a wide range of people who do this event. It's such a wide range of abilities, fitness levels, ambitions. The front group, I hung on, sat in the wheels for a while and got dropped. And I can tell you that group was really fast and very serious about racing this. But there are plenty of people behind me. And I know that some of them definitely were carrying beers in their camelbacks to mm. take, take some little refreshment breaks along the way. There's plenty of that this race has a great culture because it it's more about that kind of core participant that is there for a good time and a big challenge it's for instance the the dfl the last place finisher they get some sweet prizes Whoa. they they have a awesome steer uh, skull like with big horns on it that they give someone as a trophy and uh, the DFL this year I think also won a pair of wheels it's like they they celebrate everyone in this race and that's illustrated as best as possible in the fact that the race promoter Bobby Wintle he literally hugs every single person as they come across the finish line he's there all day long this guy is just Full of energy. I see you cringing there. You're not a hugger, huh? You're not into hugging? I'm, I'm into hugging, but like people at the finish line of a hundred mile bike race, I, I just remembered like what I looked and smelled like at the finish line of like various La Rutas that I did. You wouldn't want to hug me. Well, see, that's that's what I mean though. That this this guy, Bobby, is so passionate about this race, so excited to have these people in his adopted hometown of Stillwater that he just, he, he's going crazy. He's got so much energy the whole time. You know, he's the pre-race briefing. He, he got up and played a song on a guitar with one of his friends. He had some people read like poems and stuff. It, this is not your average pre-race briefing. It was like a, a mix between like some sort of like Baptist revival type thing and like just a little bit of music and just, I don't even know how to describe it, but the enthusiasm and sort of like the, the unity of just everyone coming to have a fun time and ride some, ride some beautiful country roads that are just, yeah, they're hard. I mean, they're hilly and rough and it's, it's a, it's kind of a hidden gem of, of riding. Well, that sounds like a good experience. I mean, one of the storylines that we have been trying to keep our finger on is the changing shape of participant cycling in America. You know, there's been a lot written about the fact that, you know, traditional USA cycling race day licenses are going down. There is the talk about, I wouldn't say the death of the American road race, but the transition of the American road race from, you know, office park crits into Grand Fondos and gravel races. So sounds like this race, maybe it's one you put on your list as a race that lets you tap into what's going on in, uh, in, in American bike racing right now. Definitely. I, I had a great time there. There's a lot of races like this nowadays, especially throughout the Midwest where gravel racing kind of seems to have really been born. I mean, there's plenty of, of these races throughout the country, but Midwest is particularly keen on it. Uh, another, you know, well, technically Oklahoma is not exactly Midwest. It's sort of a 
and in between. They call it Mid-South, actually. But uh, another one I've done is Barry Roubaix up in Michigan. And I would say this does have a similar kind of vibe to Barry Roubaix, where it's, like I said, this really diverse range of participants. Lots of people just stoked to finish it, have a big challenge for themselves. Um, but it's a race, too. Race at the front, for sure. Awesome. Well, you survived. You don't have too much red dirt in your no. hair today. No, so, I, like uh, I said, I feel like I, I'd experienced an entirely different version of this race compared to all the horror stories I heard along the way. And um, I'm not necessarily complaining, but I am a little curious about how it would have gone if we were, you know, scraping mud off of our bikes with paint sticks, or I don't even know, single speed in our bikes and the derailers get ripped off, that type of thing. Uh, Spencer, before we get out of here, got to do a little what's off the front What's off the back? Of course, the hot and not of what's going on in this week of cycling. What do you got? You got some some off the front, some off the back? Yeah. So I'll say for me this week, off the front was uh, good looking socks. Mm -hmm. Because when Cavendish crashed, he popped out of one of his shoes and he was laying there missing one of his shoes. And it's good to always have a nice pair of socks on because you never know when you're going to end up without your shoes on. And I think he did a good job being prepared for that situation. Off the back is um, Italian uh, road infrastructure yeah. because that bollard that Cavendish hit, that, that's not, yeah, do you really need to have that huge piece of plastic right in the middle of the road like that? And it's like, that was insanity. He hit it dead on and it, uh, thank goodness he's okay. It was a brutal crash, you know, just, um, uh, yeah, totally insane that he didn't hurt himself more. Get yeah. well soon, Cav. Uh, my off the front this week, Katarzyna Nuiadoma. Yes. You know, she's a rider we've been talking about for a long time. She's such a good climber. She's such a smart racer. And she won the Women's World Tour race, Trofeo Alfredo Binda, with a daring, daring solo attack with about 10K to go out of this diminished front group. Nuiadoma, you know, she, it was impressive because not only was she was strong enough to hold this group at bay, but it was a really strong move. She had a couple of uh, teammates go up there uh, you know, early in the race. It really seemed like Canyon SRAM played their cards really well, and then Niwi Adoma was able to escape for the win. And you know what? Maybe she's the foil to Bulls Dolmans this year. I was just going to say that. Kudos to Canyon SRAM for for beating Bulls Dolmans in a pretty difficult one-day race and difficult conditions, too, very rainy that, that race is also quite hilly, if I recall. Yeah, it looked like a really challenging one. So Nui Adoma, kudos to you on an amazing race. For me, off the back, I'm going to sort of piggyback on yours. I'm going to say bollards because mm. uh, I had no idea what a bollard was. Bollards, not balling. No, not balling at all. Uh, I saw the um, the tweet go up, you know, Cav crashes into bollard. <laughs> and I was like, okay, could we get a little bit more of an explanation here? I don't know what a bollard actually is. I had that experience a couple years ago at track world championships when that dude did like the wall ride up on the side of the track. Uh -huh. You remember that? Apparently those things are called hoardings, mm. not boards or boardings. It's yeah. hoardings with an H. And um, so that, again, um, illustrates how you and I need to keep brushing up on our vocabulary. So if you're a hoarder, it means that you either um, collect oh. old newspapers from the 80s or you push people into the boards. Mm. A hoarder who hoards hoardings. That would be a lot of hoarding. Think about that. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bell News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Birdie Classic Soul Drums. <laughs>